Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, my name is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and I am delighted to be with everybody here today. Uh, this is session number 158 uh, in Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, and I don't remember exactly how many sessions into the Council of Elrond we are, but it's uh, rare episodes into uh exploring the lord of the rings or sorry yeah 158 into exploring the lord of the rings uh many 34 ish into the council of elrond i think um as we are preparing tonight to talk about gandalf's big decision uh the actual uh, gandalf's description of his choice uh, to go south to Isengard instead of back to the Shire to warn Frodo himself when he hears about the coming of the Nazgul. So, um, uh, the, you know, this is going to be his his explanation of that, which is really fun to look at. So that's going to be the primary thing that we are going to be focusing on here tonight. Uh, before I start, I wanted to, as I've been doing the last couple of weeks during this season of our fall fundraising campaign, uh, I wanted to continue to share with you guys some of the bigger vision of Signum University. And I know that this, uh, you know, this is not sort of a primary interest for, for some of you. I, I, I acknowledge that. Um, but it's, I, I really, I want to share I want to share because this is this is who we are. This is what's going on. This is what we're doing and why we're doing it. Uh, and I want to I want to make sure everybody knows because I really appreciate all the support that you guys have given. Uh, and we certainly need uh, help and support as we continue to move forward uh, on uh, on all of these things. So I've been going through a series of problems that are facing higher education or that have been created by the higher education the higher education industry. Um, and this week, I'm going to be focusing in my broadcast both today, tonight, and Thursday night in some film on some, well, I would call them behind the scenes uh, kinds of problems uh, in higher education. That is, some of the issues that confront higher education or that higher education has created through its structures uh, and through how it operates. Um, Higher education is, of course, in very serious financial trouble right now. There are a large number of universities facing extremely grave outlooks. And that might seem strange in some ways. I mean, tuition has been sky high uh, for a long time now. Uh, student debt, of course, is very, very high. Um, why is it that universities are in so much trouble when they've been making so much money? And of course, the answer is that their costs also are very high as well, um, despite the fact that they bring in a very large amount of money through the amount of tuition that most of them charge. Um, they uh, do not have a very large margin at all, even those who are state funded. A lot of people, by the way, don't realize that um, in public universities, um, the state only funds a percentage uh, of their budget, and that percentage varies by state. Um, but I know, for instance, here in New Hampshire, the University of New Hampshire only has about 25% of its annual budget funded by the state, and it has to operate uh, off the rest. Anyway, um, they have uh, really, really high costs, and this is so. And this is why the current, uh, the you know, the, the student debt crisis has been such a problem. Why there's no, why there has not been any easy solution to it um, in the mainstream uh, of uh, uh, of um, higher education, uh, and that's because 
the kind of change that would be required in order to reduce tuition to a point where students no longer had to indebt themselves so thoroughly would require a massive upheaval in higher education, um, the, the, a complete change of so many things uh, on campus. Um, why are costs so high? Well, of course, partly the, the, the reasons for the high costs are the campuses themselves. Campuses have been competing, you know, colleges and universities have been competing with each other for a very long time. It has been one of the major factors as they've been trying to attract more and better students. Um, there's been, a, you know, the, the, the competition for students among schools is really fierce. And one of the primary ways in which schools compete for students is not by increasing, you know, the, uh, the quality of their teaching or the coolness of their courses. It's by the luxury of their grounds. That is a that is a, a a known thing that has the biggest impact on which one student choice, um, which schools student choose to go to, um, and. As a result, you know, of many, many years spent trying to entice students to their campus with the lavishness of their facilities, uh, there is um, uh, there are. Um, uh, the campus costs are really, really high. Um, uh, you know, some of this, uh, you know, uh, whether they're fronting or not fronting uh, with uh, the, the, the costliness uh, of their campus, um, the bills still come due uh, and are very high bills. But there's another big part uh, of the problem um, of the high costs of higher education, uh, and that is administrators. This is an awkward topic to talk about, and a lot of people in higher education don't like to talk about this. But the fact is that there are a lot of administrators in higher education who are making very large salaries. And there are a lot of them. There are a lot of people, and they are making a lot of money. Uh, and the top heaviness of higher education, as you have, uh, you know, the, the, the dynamic that's been happening over the last 10 to 20 years as more and a larger and larger percentage of the salary pool of the university is directed towards that top administrative class with fewer a uh, smaller and smaller percent of the resources uh going into the people who are actually teaching the classes uh as more and more uh you know corners are being cut and and uh, uh you know more and more adjuncts are being used fewer and fewer tenure track positions um not to mention of course uh, very frequent exploitation of the support staff across the university. Anyway, as I say, as that salary pool has been swayed more and more towards this increasingly top-heavy administrative class, it creates a big difficulty. It's one of the things that that makes the serious uh, that makes uh, that 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 has creates the really high costs of higher education, and of course, um, the administrators who are making. <laughs> A lot of that money um, are also the ones who are making decisions as well, of course, right? So when the university is having uh, is facing financial challenges, right? How do they solve those challenges? Well, surprisingly, it's not by firing themselves, right? Instead, they just you know are downsizing their own selves or their own jobs or their own salaries. Instead, their solutions tend to be things like let's fire the performing arts department um, and you know cut out these underperforming departments um, uh, without uh, quite so much 
view as to how exactly uh, the administrators are performing in order to validate their own salaries. Um, a little more looking in the mirror, perhaps, uh, would be best, but it's hard. Yeah, Morning Win, exactly. They hire consultants, exactly, right? Yeah, let's, um, we're facing, we're facing uh, 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 big difficulties, so let's uh, bring in an enormously expensive consultant and then not do what they tell us to do. <laughs> also a fairly common move, uh, unfortunately. Um, but, um, uh yeah, yeah. And Matt, you're absolutely right. Matt says administrators uh, uh, see problems and by nature seek administrative solutions. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's that is very natural. Um, absolutely. Um, uh, well, um, um, so. You know, one of the major issues here, you know, uh, th- the problem, one of the serious problems with the administrate, the whole ad- sort of administration thing, the whole administrative class that I've been talking about, um, it has created, it has opened this really big gap. You know, part of it is the, and this is something that a lot of people don't, you know, people who aren't working in higher education don't sort of uh, understand the sort of revolution that's happened in higher education over the last 20 years or so. Um, and that is the very conscious way in which institutions of higher education have tried to model themselves after the corporate world. You know, you don't have uh, you don't have a bursar anymore. You have a chief financial officer, of course. You know, you, you know, the, you know, all the universities have CFOs and CTOs and CEOs these days uh, instead of you know, the people that they used to, you know, instead of the deans, you've got vice presidents and everything. It's, it's not just about the titles, right? It's, it's about this increasingly sort of highly specialized um, uh, 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 sort of administrative roles that are created whole, you know, uh, graduate degrees. You, know, you can now get a, ma- you know, a master's or a PhD in higher education administration. It's an, it's an entirely, uh, you know, developed uh, subspecialty now that you go into. Um, and, um, you know, and look, there are rationales for most of the administrative positions that are out there and everything. I mean, I'm not trying to say that it's just some kind, that the, the whole thing is just sort of completely corrupt. But what I am saying is that the fixed costs of all these administrative salaries uh, is a real burden. Um, and the burden is being borne by the students uh, and is leading very directly uh, to the student debt problem. And meanwhile, the hard thing um, is that what are we getting for that money? What are what are we in education getting for that money, right? Um, at the same time that, I mean, it quite seems, right, that at the same time that more and more money is being paid uh, to higher administrations across the board, um, there's also a decline in leadership. Um, I think some of you, uh, I think perhaps were at uh, Mythmoot. I think it was last year's Mythmoot. Uh, uh, to hear Tom Shippey give his talk. Gosh, maybe it was the year before last. Tom Shippey's talk the year before last. Um, but uh, I've heard Tom Shippey talk about this a couple times now, and I think he's very, very right about this. His sort of reflection back over what he saw happening in higher education over the course of his long career um, is he said that, you know, in the old days, you had people who were 
who were leaders, like they were focused on leading other people, mentoring colleagues and 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 leading an institution, um, you know, into the future and, and to sort of, you know, to 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 meet its vision. Um, then you had leaders replaced with managers. And that's bad enough. Um, you know, people who are who who are focusing not on leading people, but on managing things and managing situation or just trying to manage people instead of trying to lead them. Um, and then the step down from managers to administrators is even lower. If you think about it, what verb is even associated? Like leaders lead, right? Okay, that's clear. Managers manage, I guess, right? In some sense, though, in the sense in which they manage things is sometimes a little abstract, but still there's at least a concept there, right? What do administrators do? They administrate? What does that even mean? What does it look like to admit? Can you draw a picture of somebody administrating something, right? I mean, it's like the whole idea of what an administrator does is really abstract. Um, it's, um, it's not really clear. Um, uh, yeah, they administer, right? Administer what exactly? What are they administering and to whom? And why? Again, it's it's not clear what even that means. Um, and um, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> they administer fees, Blancmont. I suppose so. <laughs> I I uh, I I suppose so. Um, anyway, so it's it's uh, I. This is this is to me sort of a frustrating thing, um, you know. At Signum, we have changed the entire model, or the entire employment model, and one of the primary things that we have worked to do is to eliminate this whole class of administrators. It's not that we don't have people doing the jobs. There are many important things that administrators do. Um, and we have people doing those things, but we try to keep the focus on, on, on bringing up leaders and not administrators. And one of the most important things that we do there is our pay scale. We have every single Signum employee on the same pay scale where everyone is being paid according to the same formula. We have a formula which is applied equally to everybody uh, and everybody just gets paid based on the terms in the exactly the same formula and can move up and down. We have lots of people who have different roles, people who are faculty doing a faculty role, but they're also in, in a leadership role. They're also a dean, you know, and also they're a worker somewhere else, right? You know, there's, there's, uh, uh, and we don't, um, we have a very flexible structure in that way. And one of the reasons is to kind of break this, uh, this ho horizontal barrier that has been between the administrators up here doing all the things and the people down here who are doing sort of, all the normal work of the institution and the pay scales are just not commensurate with each other at all. Um, um, it's a, can I just uh, share with you a, 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 a funny website? I don't know if you've ever uh, seen it before, but like higher education administration is so ridiculous. It's become a kind of joke, right? So here's this uh, wonderful website called university title generator.com. 
uh, where you could, it'll, it'll create for you a random uh, academic title. Uh, in this case, the vice chancellor of the subcommittee for strategic employment compliance. Uh, and then, uh, of course, if you, <laughs> it's got the click here if this position is not prestigious enough for you button, so you can you can create a new one like lead assistant president of internal maintenance for the task force on strategic employee excellence. Uh, love it, <laughs> love it. <laughs> well, that's a pretty modest one. Um, <laughs> Christopher says the scary thing is that I could absolutely write the job description for that position. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Associate assistant coordinator of the subcommittee for alumni technology. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, um, like I said, you know, jokes like this always have, uh, you know, sort of, there's always a, 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 a nugget of truth in those things. Um, but uh, anyway, it's uh, it's it's funny. Um, so this is again, this is one of the things that Signum has set itself up up to, and this is has set itself up to oppose uh, and to to just basically hit the reset button. There are so many things, uh, so many places, uh, so many kind of blind alleys into which higher education has been wandering. And higher education is really resistant to change. Having gone in these directions, higher education is, it's hard to change higher education. This is one of the reasons why, although starting Signum completely from scratch and building everything absolutely from the ground up as we've been doing, um, has been very challenging in a lot of ways, it has had some big advantages. And the biggest advantage it has had is that it has enabled us to just think about this stuff from the outside as we've come in. Um, and so to be able to see some of these problems and say, okay, the whole structure, the whole hierarchy of higher education is messed up. So let's wipe it out. Let's, we're starting from scratch. So let's just try approaching this whole thing a different way. Um, and, uh, and that's, um, that's what we've been able to do. So this is one of the issues that we've been working to address, um, changing our pay scale, uh, changing our approach to how we assign roles and titles and things like that, um, and creating a different, more flexible and more egalitarian workplace than is normally the case in a lot of higher education. Um, so anyway, uh, this, that's, this was today's problem in higher education. Uh, uh, tune in next time. Uh, tomorrow night, uh, I'm going to talk about another fun topic, which is another major even more historical problem uh, in the operations of higher education. But thanks for that. Please don't forget, if you haven't had a chance yet, uh, to go in and make a donation to Signum's annual fund, signumuniversity.org slash fund. Many thanks to uh, the many, many of you who already have donated and who who continue uh, to donate, who have set up uh, recurring donations. Um, that is particularly wonderful and very generous. And I would encourage you, please, to, to consider uh, making a gift to help Signum continue to work on making a difference uh, and moving forward uh, as we continue to move forward uh, with our own... Uh, our own ideas uh, and our own plans uh, for the future of higher education here. Um, yeah, yeah. And Mike, I agree. Mike says, to be fair to the bloated institutions, if they were to restart today from zero, they might do better than where they are. I agree, Mike. And like I said, I'm not going to pretend like 
there are really easy solutions to this particular problem that they've just been overlooking. I mean, it's hard. It's very hard, right? Uh, to um, it's 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 easy from the outside to look at it and say. Yep, that's just no good. They need to scrap that and start over. It's harder when you've got lots of actual people and lots of actual jobs that you're talking about scrapping and starting over. It's very, very difficult. Um, but, um, but I do think um, that um, I do think that it's really important uh, to be thinking about these things. And and I, I think that this is one of those things that univer- more universities are going to be compelled to be thinking about more and more uh, as we continue on during the um, tumultuous 2020 to 2021 academic year uh, in higher education. Um, But um, yeah, yeah, Evil Dr. Cannon, it is a lot easier uh, to be... um, uh, to be a problem identifier than a problem solver. It, it really is. And this is one of the reasons why, um, this is one of the reasons why, I, you know, I'm kind of changing my tack and talking about this stuff more than I have in the past. I mean, Signum has for a while, you know, we identified problems and we have worked to, you know, work around those problems to solve those problems for ourselves. Right. And we have largely, I mean, we, there are a lot of these things, we, you know, we have, We have our own problems, right? But a lot of these things, which have been such big stumbling blocks for higher education as a whole, are not, uh, you know, are not are not problems for us. I mean, we 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 have solved them um, for 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 ourselves. Um, I haven't talked about it in part because, I mean, what am I supposed to say to everybody else, right? Again, like you know, hey administrators, um, start off by firing most of yourselves, and then we'll talk, right? I mean, it's it's what. What am I supposed to do? Who who would listen, right? Even if I did say that, well, um, things are things are different now, right? Things are now in crisis, um, and uh, one of the things that I think again, more and more, there will be people, there will be schools who are going to be saying, we have to reinvent stuff right the heck now, or else this school is going under. That is going to be happening in a lot. Of places, and but oh, but then what? What do you do? What what's the alternative? Right? What else could it look like if not like the traditional structure that has contributed to part of the problem? Right? Well, we have a model for how that works, right? And so I don't want to keep it to myself anymore. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm not just you know I'm I'm not content to just sort of sit around smugly saying, "Well, we don't have this." I'm so glad we don't have this problem and I can just watch everybody else struggling. We don't want to do that. Um, we want um, we want to help. We just want to say, hey, like, I understand this is this is uh, this is a serious problem and it's going to be difficult to solve this. But we do have an alternative model uh, and it is working. So, um, you know, just just mentioning it, <laughs> just mentioning it. Happy to talk about it if you're interested. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, ha! Sam says, step one, get a huge endowment. See, Sam, that's the irony, right? That's the irony is that a huge endowment is exactly what a bunch of these schools who are facing bankruptcy have and Signum does not have, uh, and yet we're not. Um that is exactly uh, one of the ironies, and I would say certainly, um, um, certainly, 
step step one in our in our strategy uh, certainly was not uh, getting a big endowment. Not that I am opposed to big endowments, by the way. Just specifying that you know that uh, uh, we uh, uh, we would certainly find a big endowment a great blessing uh, to us. Don't get me wrong, um, but um, but yeah, that's not. Um, uh, that's not the, uh, the, 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 the main thing there. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, very good. Exactly. Go on there. If you do happen to have a few million bucks around, just leave it on the virtual doorstep. Yeah. No, actually just knock on the door and I'd be happy to invite you in for a cup of tea. <laughs> no problem there. Um, uh, and yes, uh, uh, the answer, uh, evil Dr. Cannon, is there a limit to the size of endowment? Uh, no, no, not a theoretical limit. Um, I think uh, if you do have a spare billion that you're looking to spend, I, I, I can definitely help. With that, pro- that is one of the problems that I am prepared to help with. There's no question about that. <laughs> no question about that. Um, okay, very good. Um, hey, all right. Hey, oh, and by the way, so folks that are there on the Twitch chat, I do see what you're saying there. I can't. Uh, so. Uh, Jim Jim, the one who's posting questions. Uh, I, I, I don't, uh, I can't in this class just sort of do random uh, Middle Earth questions, though I do do that on Friday afternoons in my, uh, you know, sort of random Q&As during my, uh, uh, during my uh, Grifflet stream um, uh, on Twitch. Uh, it's on the, the, the Lotro Twitch channel. So you can tune in at one o'clock on Fridays and I can do that and your question might be carried over to that. Uh, but anyway, um, Okay, uh, so let us get back to the text now. So we've just had the big speeches by Radagast, but he still has a little bit left to say. And that message brought me hope, says Gandalf. Uh, of course, the message that... Remember Saruman's very cunning message, right? If Gandalf would like help, then Saruman uh, is ready to help. And that message brought me hope, for Saruman the White is the greatest of my order. Radagast is, of course, a worthy wizard, a master of shapes and changes of hue, and he has much lore of herbs and beasts, and birds are especially his friends. But Saruman has long studied the arts of the enemy himself, and thus we have often been able to forestall him. It was by the devices of Saruman that we drove him from Dol Guldur. It might be that he had found some weapons that would drive back the Nine. I will go to Saruman, I said. Then you must go now, said Radagast, for I have wasted time in looking for you, and the days are running short. I was told to find you before midsummer, and that is now here. Even if you set out from this spot, you will hardly reach him before the Nine discover the land that they seek. I myself shall turn back at once. And with that he mounted and would have ridden straight off. Stay a moment, I said. We shall need your help, and the help of all things that will give it. Send out messages to all the beasts and birds that are your friends. Tell them to bring news of anything that bears on this matter to Saruman and Gandalf. Let messages be sent to Orthanc. I will do that, he said, and rode off as if the nine were after him. Okay. Gandalf's... uh, Gandalf's... um, Explanation of his decision process... 
is fairly simple, right? Um, Saruman, Saruman knows what he's talking about. Saruman has long studied the arts of the enemy himself, and thus we have often been able to forestall him, right? Because Saruman knows... So, is if there's anybody who is likely to be able to have some resource, some ability to oppose the Nazgul, and that seems to be... Um, that seems to be Gandalf's primary issue here. His primary idea here is to find a way to resist the Nine. And he knows, as we suggested last time, um, that he can't stand up to the Witch King and the rest of the Nine by himself. And so, therefore, even his going back to protect Frodo is very far from a guarantee that Frodo and the Ring will be safe, right? The only way for him to... The way for him to be most certain that the Ring will be safe is for him to find a way to resist or oppose or prevent the Nine from getting to Frodo. Um, So... And Saruman, it makes sense. Saruman has long studied the arts of the enemy himself, and his uh, not very explicit message did imply that he had some kind of plan, resource, something or other, right, that could assist in the resistance of the Nine. Um, And... It was by the devices of Saruman that we drove him from Dol Guldur... Gandalf says, right? That is, there is, it is, it is known, right? It is known that Saruman has strength that can be used against the enemy. Notice the sentence about Radagast here, right? Which is a sentence that a lot of people like. Uh, and if you take it on its own, uh, of course, it is um, very complimentary to Radagast. Radagast is, of course, a worthy wizard, a master of shapes and changes of hue, and he has much lore of herbs and beasts, and birds are especially his friends. Right? That is, um, uh, that is charming, right? That's a charming picture of Radagast, and it is, um, it is interesting, Matt, uh, that, um, Radagast's specialties are very similar to fairy things. Um, uh, glamour, shapes and hues, and an attachment to the natural world. Yeah, yeah. No, there's... Um, he is... Uh, I agree. It's quite fairy-like, right? So he can... Now, I think he can actually change his shape. Like, Bjornish, Right? Uh, in, in a Bjornish way, perhaps. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure what changes of hue are about, Matt. I'm inclined to think that is some kind of illusion, some kind of glamour is involved there as well. Um, but um, And he has much lore of herbs and beasts, and birds are especially his friends, so he's, you know, the friends of animals and whatever. Um, uh, but... Um, Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry. Dr- 
Dracon Terachne, yeah, sorry, I'm looking at your huge comment here. I know you had said it. God, it was bigger than you thought it was. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the things I'm extracting from your comment here uh, is that, uh, well, you're right, lots of things have bird friends, don't they? Um yeah, lots of things have bird friends. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, green Great Dragon, maybe Bjorn learned from him. Yeah, Bjorn is a mystery, right? Um, what Bjorn is exactly and where he got what he does is unclear, right? Um, whether it's native to him in some sense, or, you know, there's no, you know, he's under no uh, enchantment, but his own, as Gandalf says, which may mean a lot or may not, you know, Um, uh, it's a little bit less clear, but um, yeah, Gilgonthir, yes, Um, where Saruman is the what well, they do seem to have their academic specialties, right? And and this, you know, we've we've looked at this before, right? I mean, Gandalf goes in for Hobbit lore and fire, right? He's made a he's also made a study of 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 smokes and lights, right? His fireworks being the most obvious manifestation of that. But um, uh, Gandalf studies fire and he studies hobbits. Uh, Saruman has made a study of Sauron himself and of the Rings of Power, right? Um, Radagast uh, has much lore of herbs and beasts, and birds are especially his friends, right? So again, I I don't want to say that it's exactly the same thing as academic specialties, but they do, all three wizards that we learn about, do seem to be sort of primarily studying a thing, like an academic, right? Um, uh, you know, perhaps with a little bit more of a view towards praxis than many academics have, perhaps, um, in almost all cases, right? Uh, Gandalf is both a, uh, he, he studies the lore of fire, but is also a practitioner, uh, in pyrotechnics, not to mention smoke rings. Uh, and, um, uh, Radagast not only studies herbs and beasts, but also like actually lives among them and is friends with them. And of course, Saruman uh, is also into praxis as well, not only studying rings of power, but working to make rings of power himself. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, yeah. Fourth Dauntless, yes, I agree. Gandalf has has made a special study of hobbits, but he's also just a friend of simple folks. Butterbur seems to have a special place in his heart. Yes, yes, I agree. Um, yes, yeah. Um, he has uh, made a study of simple things in that way, right? Um, even you might want to say, uh, perhaps low things, right? Um, now, disclaimer, and maybe we can talk about this later, but I'm not talking about the um, Unfinished Tales stuff. Several of you are bringing up the Unfinished Tales stuff that is sort of the retcon that Tolkien did. But I have to say, 
there are two reasons why I am not bringing up the Unfinished Tales stuff. One is that I want to focus on this text here, right? On what's going on here within this story. And if there is one thing that is clear about the Unfinished Tales stuff, it is that that stuff postdates this, right? So this that stuff has a sort of a retroactive impact on these passages, but they don't illuminate these passages directly, necessarily. Um, uh, it doesn't help us to understand what, Gan- what, what um, Tolkien is saying in these passages, simply instead of trying to answer that question, instead saying, what did Tolkien have to say about this passage ten years later, right? Um, and uh, and Sam, that's the other reason, is that I'm in, gen- I'm in general kind of resistant to that. There are other places and times, of course, for talking about that kind of retcon that Tolkien is doing later, and it's super interesting, and I love talking about that stuff, but it's not here when we're doing our close reading of this text. It only confuses the issue. But Sam, I absolutely agree with you that it confuses everything even more in this particular instance. As I have to say... I think, thinking of the stuff that Tolkien wrote after The Lord of the Rings, there's a lot of stuff that he did as he was working through the Silmarillion stuff. Of course, all the things we've been talking about in our long Morgoth's Ring discussion on Wednesday nights in the Mythgard Academy over the last six months or so. Um, uh, There's a lot of stuff that he wrote after the fact, which contains a lot of retcon material where Tolkien is changing and developing his ideas and working those ideas backwards into the text of his published uh, works. And I, like I said, I love all that material and it's very, very interesting stuff. But of all that stuff that he wrote, of all the things that came after The Lord of the Rings and which sort of inform and even alter some of the things from The Lord of the Rings. The material that he wrote, um, uh, the material that he wrote about the wizards, I find some of the least satisfactory of any of the, of the retcon stuff that he did. Uh, Tolkien was wonderful at retcon, um, and I, um, but I am not a big fan of it. Yeah, uh, Green Great Dragon refers to the uh, the scene where Gandalf blows smoke rings before Saruman. Uh, I'll, that's one of my least favorite, actually. Um, that's yeah. That's that's one of my one of my least favorite. Um, and similarly. Okay, but my very least favorite of all, one of my least favorite Tolkien retcon moments in all of his later writings. I mean, one of my very least favorite of all of the things. It's, it's got some competition, but one of my very least favorite things of all the things that he wrote about the Lord of the Rings stuff after the Lord of the Rings was the place where he said that Radagast failed. Um, I thought, I find that enormously unconvincing. Um, and just not it's it's it does it does not it is not up to his normal retcon standards i dislike that very very much um uh yeah anyway um but let's um yeah and jj exactly one of the one of the problems uh 
uh, here. Um, okay, so hang on. Let me address a question here. Ambrosius Aureliana says, is retcon the right word? Um, he says, I brought up uh, Tolkien's retcon skills with, with another friend who is both a Tolkien fan and is studying linguistics, and she argued that what Tolkien did wasn't retcon, uh, but mostly finding new meaning in what he had already written. I wasn't sure how to judge this. Um, okay, so I, it sounds to me, uh, uh, Ambrosius, something that is has more to do with like how your friend defines retcon. Um, to, uh, and, and I am very likely using that word very cavalierly. Um, but what I am talking about is when Tolkien invents new stories which retroactively work back into the stories that he's done before. And he is generally, uh, in most every case, a very careful reader of his own text first and foremost. And so he often is less filling in gaps or covering over mistakes that he made, which I think is maybe what your friend is thinking about from, you know, is associating with the word retcon. Um, and instead, um, kind of drawing conclusions from his own published text and expanding on those. But there are other places, um, uh, um, but, but there are other places where again, he is definitely making changes, um, and of course, one of the most uh, pronounced examples, uh, yeah, there are two that I would point to. JJ, you just exactly named one of them. The changes to chapter five of The Hobbit, of course, are definitely retcon, right? Um, no, no matter how you define it, I'm pretty sure everyone would have to agree that the changes to chapter five of The Hobbit is, is, is retcon. Um, but there are also far more complicated um, uh, moments of this kind of thing. One of the biggest, and I think most dazzling of which is the, is what we've been discussing in the Morgoth's ring class over the last month or so. And that is the Athrobeth, uh, that is published the Athrobeth of Finrod and Andreth that is published in Morgoth's ring. Um, it is a very remarkable work, which retcons the entire, like, purpose of humanity and the relationship between humans and elves and like what the point of elves and humans are and why Eru created two races at all. I mean, all of these questions that some of which never really got asked, others of which got totally different answers before. And he asks the questions, changes the answers and retroactively enriches the entire Silmarillion and Lord of the Rings tradition. It's amazing. It's, um, it's dazzling. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, so I don't want to quibble about terminology, but anyway, like I said, when, when he does this kind of thing, usually, um, he's really, really good at it. I dislike not all by any stretch, but many of the things that he does with the wizards, especially his proclamation that Radagast failed with, which I simply disagree, or rather, I think there's no good evidence for that. Um, and, uh, his the own the claim that he makes about it stands on its head, um, and just it, it doesn't seem to um, uh, doesn't seem to fit there at all, uh, as far as but in my opinion. Anyway, so this is a long digression for me to explain about why I'm not talking about those other things. So, but so any association you have, for instance, between Radagast and Yavanna. Forget about it for now. 
right? Um, that's not what we're learning from this text. What we're learning from this text is that he has much lore of herbs and beasts. That's what he studies. He studies plants and animals, which is a noble thing to study, right? Saruman is studying the devices of the enemy. Radagast is studying plants and beasts. Gandalf is studying fire and humble people, right? Um, funny little cultures, and, uh, you know, local bartenders and stuff. That's what Gandalf is studying, apparently. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Chris says, I'd say people full stop. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I, I can I can go with that. I can go with that. Um, and, um, yeah, trifle, I'm ready. I'm ready to take that step. Trifle says, if we're going to go with Lord of the Rings stuff, we need to stop thinking of the wizards as Maiar as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm ready to be guided by the text in that. Absolutely. Now, one thing I will say, the Lord of the Rings text, <clears throat> I say the Lord of the Rings text, text in contrast to the Hobbit text, has already raised the question for us um, of who Gandalf is or what Gandalf is. That question gets raised by Frodo back in chapter two in the shadows of the past when Gandalf shows up and it's been a long time and he looks uh, a little bit older. And, and, and there's this there's this we are invited, gently invited by the text to say, what what is Gandalf? Right. Doesn't seem to be an elf. Right. Um Seems to be one of the big people, but is he actually human? He should be aging a little more by now if he were human. I mean, even if he were a Dunedain, it's been a long time since he set off on Bilbo's adventure and he wasn't young then. So um, anyway, uh, there's the question has already been we, we've been invited to ask the question, what is Gandalf already? Right. What is he really? But it's not really been pushed on us. It's it's not a it's not a, a question that's been really thrust upon us yet. But it's going to be more as we go through. So I do think, yeah, evil Dr. Cannon, that's exactly what I'm thinking about that passage. Um, uh, that passage when Pippin is thinking these thoughts. Right. We are going to be um, asked. We as readers are going to be asked to wonder ex specifically about when Gandalf entered the world and what he is, right? Um, uh, anyway, uh, so, so yeah, so we will see, um, we will see what directives, you know, the text gives us or permits us. Um, right now, I would say, by the time we get to the Council of Elrond, we're already, I think, in a, a sort of an indeterminate place. On the one hand, Wizards are kind of like professional people, right? That's how they seemed in The Hobbit. I mean, he seemed to be, a, a, you know, a guy with a job and with certain skills, right? Um, uh, but there is very little reason to think from The Hobbit that he, that Gandalf isn't a normal guy, right? He doesn't seem like quite a normal guy. I mean, again, you even think about... Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mad Violinist talks about, I was professionally interested in your ring, right? That is an interesting line from Gandalf, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, anyway. Um, but the point is, he's already somewhere in the middle, right? It's, it's, he's no longer just a guy who is a 
professional wizard, right? Um, he is instead... It's not quite certain what he is. Think also of the significance of the statement, um, then you shall see Gandalf the Grey uncloaked. Right? This idea that he goes about cloaking himself normally. Right? Bilbo has known Gandalf for decades, but Bilbo has only ever seen Gandalf the Grey uh, cloaked. Right? He's only seen the cloaked version. Um, and... Uh, so that there is an uncloaked version, right? That there is, you know, somebody who is behind the scenes and, uh, you know, that, that he is something else in hiding underneath, right? That there is some power that he conceals from everybody else suggests that there's something else about him, that he is not just a normal guy at all. Um, but, um, uh, and yes, Rowan, when we get here to... Um, when we get to Rivendell, I mean, heck, even when we get close to Rivendell, even Glorfin- the way that Glorfindel talks about Gandalf, the way that Aragorn talks about Gandalf, um, Gandalf obviously has an enormous level of respect uh, from everybody. Um, and um, and he does seem to be Elrond's right-hand man here. Uh, in Rivendell, Rowan, right? I mean, we saw that we saw Gandalf and Glorfindel sitting on the right and left hand of Elrond at the feast. We saw, we've seen the role that Gandalf has played at the council so far, right? And the significance of that. Um, but um, absolutely. So, so we have some reason to suspect that there's more to Gandalf than just professional wizard. Um but um uh but at the same time the operations of the wizards or the professional interests of the wizards if you will does seem to be focused on um does seem to be focused on academic study right um, they Gandalf seems to take for granted in, in a sense, right? He he sort of mentions it. He doesn't explain that. He mentions it as a matter of course that obviously, like wizards, have they are lore masters, right? They study things, um, but they don't all study the same things. They do have different specialties. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and good, Chris has said that we know that Elrond regards him as the, the chief mover of all the events that are taking place. Um, yes, he has just declared that when handing the floor over to Gandalf here uh, at the meeting, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, okay. Back to that Radagast statement, though. Radagast is, of course, a worthy wizard, a master of shapes and changes of hue, and he has much lore of herbs and beasts and birds, or especially his friends. You notice the point of that sentence, right? There's a primary point to this sentence and a secondary point to this sentence. That is, there's the secondary point of this sentence, which is what it says about Radagast, right? It's sort of positive description of Radagast. Um, what are Radagast? Radagast, what's what's Radagast's resume look like, right? On the one hand, that but that seems to me only the secondary thing. 
um, the primary function of it in the context of the paragraph is exactly the unspoken but. Exactly. Um, Radagast is, of course, a worthy wizard, right? He starts off by saying, now, keep in mind, I mean no offense to Radagast, right? Uh, he's very respectable, of course, and has many very fine qualities, <laughs> right? But Saruman has long studied the arts of the enemy himself, right? Um, that is to say... Um, Gandalf is making an assessment here. I mean, one the, there seems to be one thing that he doesn't seem to entertain. One option that he doesn't seem to entertain. And it might not at first be obvious why he doesn't entertain it. Right? It's like, okay, so on the one hand, the nine ring wraiths are coming, looking for Frodo, and the Witch King, you know, is leading them. I can't fight them myself. If only I had a fellow wizard here as back... Hey, Radagast, right? How about you and me, uh, maybe the two of us together, uh, can pool our strength and stand against the Witch King? Um, no. <laughs> That's not... Radagast is, of course, a worthy wizard, right? Um, uh, you know, and he has much lore of herbs and beasts, you know, like it's, yeah, no, it's really great and, and very useful in, in its own way. But is he going to be much use against the Nazgul? No. If you're trying to oppose the Nazgul, if you're trying to stand up uh, to the greatest servants of Sauron, um, you know, the, the, the wraiths <clears throat> made by the rings of power, which Saruman has studied at length, um, Saruman is really the one you need. Radagast, not actually so very helpful. Um, so, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, Angrist, Radagast would be very much out of his element, it seems, in trying to oppose the Nazgul. Um, yeah, yeah, um... It's interesting, WKU, I wonder. He says that he also seems to indicate that he wouldn't care, at least not on this front. Maybe he would care more about how Sauron was corrupting the flora and fauna. Yeah, no, it's not that he doesn't care about Sauron, exactly. But, I mean, certainly... Radagast isn't, like, gonna... isn't here to defend the Shire, right? Uh, and really, the fact that he's come here at all means that he's left his own home domain unprotected, right? Which, presumably, he does care about as well, right? But but the main thing is that this is not his play, right? Radagast is not going to stand up to the Nine if Gandalf doesn't have any chance against the Witch King and all of the Nine. Then how much help is Radagast going to be? Fourth Dauntless, it's a really good way to think about it. Gandalf and Radagast are both stewards, but their stewardship covers different stuff. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, uh, exactly. Um, so, okay. Uh, so he kind of dismisses Radagast as being relevantly useful to this particular situation, right? So that's one thing um, 
Uh, the, yeah, as Mike says, when your house is on fire, you don't call your veterinarian, no matter how good of a vet they are, you call the fire department. That does seem to be a good way to characterize uh, the uh, the situation here. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, it might be it was. And uh, by the way, I agree with you let's see who was saying this before it was um someone was talking about saruman's devices um yeah evil dr cannon i wonder what the devices of saruman were uh before uh with which they drove uh the enemy out of dol guldur i don't know um devices is a really interesting word isn't it um it was by the devices of saruman that we drove him back from dol guldur the devices of Saruman. Now, I don't think, of course, we normally use the word devices to refer to handheld electronic devices uh, that I believe not to be what Gandalf made. And yet, um, uh, it, yeah, it means something that he devised. Exactly. Cunning plans. But um, although they could be like stratagems of some kind or other, um, it is also possible um, that, there, I mean, could there be some kind of actual device, like some sort of object? I get he's Saruman Ringmaker, right? Now he's not coming out of the closet with that yet. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's he devised things. Um, but um, yeah, he devised things. I don't know what, what I mean. So, like, in terms of like st- what strategy would drive, uh, you know, would drive Sauron from uh, Dol Guldur, you know, exactly. I'm not really sure. Um, uh, but, um, <laughs> yeah, Arden Crayon is imagining an elaborate Rube Goldberg contraption wheeled up to the walls of Dol Guldur. Yeah, uh, something like that. I don't really know. Um yeah, yeah, not um, not sure what his devices are. I just think it's an interesting it's an interesting term because uh, the thing that interests me most about that word uh, that word choice there is that <clears throat> it invites at least the possibility, um, or oh, let me soften that a little bit. It is consistent with some kind of actual invention on Saruman's part, some actual um, work of cunning or wisdom or even technology, in a sense. Um, So, yeah, a giant wooden rabbit. I'm sure that was it, Ambrosius. I'm sure that was it. Yeah. Um, uh, Yeah, we're not told anything else about it, so we don't know what it is. But again, whether or not it was... I mean, again, presumably, again, presumably it wasn't something that would have alarmed everybody else, right? I'm sure Galadriel and Gandalf and, and Elrond would all have been a little bit alarmed had had he been like, okay, let's... Uh, you know, I've got... Um, I've got this... Um, I've, I've, I've made my own ring of power, and I'm pretty sure that by using it, we can drive, you know, Sauron out of... Uh, Merkwood, I'm sure everyone would have been a little bit alarmed about that. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Let's see. Right, Sam was suggesting maybe something along the lines of like a you know like a beta version of the Fires of Orthunk. I wonder. I wonder. Um, it's not impossible, right? It's not imp- though. I still think it unlikely. Um, I still think it unlikely. Um, but um, but anyway, it's just it's just it's. It's a word which has a certain amount of foreshadowing to it, uh, is the thing that I like about it. Um, foreshadowing, which I suspect Gandalf might even have intended here. Um, even less do I have any idea what would be weapons that would drive back the Nine. Maybe he had found some weapons that would drive back the Nine. Um, I don't know. I don't know what that is, what that would be. Um, But that's also imaginable, right? If Saruman has been studying for a long time, um, you know, if his academic field of study is the power of the enemy, then he would be in a position to figure out what the potential weaknesses of the Nazgul are, right? Um, And so... If he, having found this out, right, if he could then, um, uh, if he could then, you know, he, that's the help that he is saying that he wants to share. Um, yeah, now it's, you know, so Matt, of course, it is, uh, very, um, uh, one does remember, of course, the, uh, the Barrow Blades, which, do seem to uh, have effect against the ring rates, right? Um, though I'm not sure that that's... Um, uh, I'm not sure that that's uh, something that um, would necessarily drive them back in the same way uh, that Gandalf seems to be imagining here. Um, I don't really know. Again, I'm not sure what's in Gandalf's head, either by the word devices or by the word weapons. Exactly. Um, is it possible that Gandalf is imagining him and Saruman standing shoulder to shoulder, holding magic swords to, you know, drive back the, uh, uh, the nine maybe, but I don't think so. At least I certainly don't think that that would have to be it. Um, but, um, but I'm not really, I'm not really sure. Um, yeah, and for Dauntless, I do agree that the Barrow Blades seem likely to be effective only, or at least primarily, against the Witch King of Angmar, and not just being anti-Ringwraith uh, weapons in general. Um, <laughs> sorry, you guys on Discord are being very funny tonight. Um, <laughs> Top says is imagining is imagining Saruman saying, "Say hello to my little friend." Um, hey, yeah, who knows? Who knows? Um, <laughs> but um, Gandalf's decision to go to Saruman makes it clear. Um, uh, that he believes that him teaming up with Saruman, like working together shoulder to shoulder, right? In a non-remote capacity, um, seems to be the best chance 
that they, the good guys, have to resist the Nine. Um, to resist, and at least to delay them, right, in order to give Frodo time to flee. This is his plan all along, right, to enable Frodo to get out of the Shire, to get to Rivendell. Um, he doesn't need Gandalf's help for that. If Gandalf has to go, join with Saruman so that the two of them together can, you know, attempt to resist the Nazgul. That will be the best way to be able to help Frodo. He's not, um, you know, uh, sort of abandoning Frodo, right? He is taking it to the enemy instead. Um, the enemy, which is the most serious, um, uh, the most serious um, threat to Frodo. And uh, Mad Violinist, I think you're right. Um, Mad Violinist says that uh, Gandalf has fallen into the trap of seeking superior force rather than relying on humbler means. He has committed one of the classic blunders. Yeah, yeah, he has. Uh, he has committed one of the classic blunders. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree. I agree. Um, this is the wrong choice from Gandalf for that reason. I mean, in retrospect, it turns out to be the wrong choice, right? For sure. Um, but I do agree, Chris, that in that way, um, this does seem to be the wrong choice. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, and this is the way, if there's, if there is, uh, if there is a way that Gandalf could have foreseen that this, that it was the wrong choice, it seems to me like perhaps that is, that is the angle there. Um, but although it's a mistake, I do think it's an understand, an, an understandable one. I will go to Saruman. Uh, and Chris, the one thing I would say, this is again, though, where I think we see Saruman's cleverness. Remember how Saruman's message characterized Gandalf's potential refusal as mere pride, right? Um, if Gandalf is willing to seek help, Saruman will give it, right? Um, Saruman has it to give, but only if Gandalf is willing to trust him, is willing to ask him for help. Um, so if Gandalf says no, if Gandalf does do the sort of um, humble thing, right, um, and not try to appeal to Forrest, then he's being arrogant, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, so um, now I agree. I certainly agree with everybody who is saying that, you know, it's, uh, it's good that it happened, right? You know, that uh, uh, it, it all turned out for the best. I certainly agree that it all turned out for the best. Um, but just because it turned out for the best doesn't mean that it was the right thing to do, right? That it was the right decision to make. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Saruman adds, then you must go now. Um, I was told to find you before midsummer, and that is now here, right? There is now. This is interesting because we were, we were, 
Seeing how in Saruman's message to Gandalf he was urging him to come sooner, it would be too late, which, in retrospect, seems very manipulative. Um, But here, of course, circumstances have contrived um, to make Radagast, who is seeking Gandalf in good faith, as we will learn, um, very greatly adds to the effect of that element of the message, right? Um, By, as it happens he comes and finds him almost beyond his deadline so that Radagast himself is extremely uh, uh, concerned about um, the time, right? And, and, and is able to tell him, yeah, like, we're, there's, there's no time to spare, right? Um, I was told to reach you before, to find you before midsummer, and that is now here. That means if you leave right now, you barely have time to get down before Saruman said it would be too late for him to help, right? So whatever it is, however it is that he can help you, um, you're going to lose the chance if you don't go right away. And so in that context, Gandalf does not have time even to go back to warn Frodo. If he goes back to warn Frodo, he would lose several days. And that could be enough based on um, uh, based on the uh, time frame uh, that Radagast has given him here. If he's going to go, he has to He has to either go now or not bother to go at all, because Saruman has told him it would be too late. And if he, since he has chosen and believes that this is the best chance he has to help Frodo, it means he's got to go right now and does not have time even um, to... Uh, uh, does not have time even to, uh, uh, to head back to the Shire. Um... And with that, he mounted and would have ridden straight off. Stay a moment, I said. Now, and Radagast's own hurry um, uh, Radagast's own hurry um, helps to cement this, right? I mean, he clearly believes the urgency of the situation. Um, notice also Radagast doesn't say where he's going. I myself shall turn back at once <clears throat> to Saruman. I guess, is where he's going. Um, uh, that at least would be the implication to me. Not like, anyway, I'm off home. Bye, I'm done. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm going back to, you know, to the woods. Um, no, it says that he... Uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Gandalf asks him to stay a moment. We shall need your help, and the help of all things that will give it. Send out messages to all the beasts and birds that are your friends. Um, Notice how Gandalf does genuinely appreciate Radagast's skills, right? What Radagast offers. He knows that he is friends with many beasts and birds, uh, that he can get messages out and can learn a lot of things. He is... Notice how this fits in with Gandalf's thinking right now, right? He He's going to want three things, right? Upon learning that it's the Nazgul that are coming, he's going to want three things. He's going to want, first, to warn and protect Frodo. Secondly, he's going to want to know where the enemy is. How close are the Nazgul to finding the Shire, right? And third, he wants help in protecting Frodo from the Nazgul, right? And so that's why he's going to Saruman. 
Um, but um, but he still wants to do the other things as well, right? And I think it's that second thing, trying to find out where the Nazgul are and what's going on, right? Um, he knows that by going down to Orthanc, he is leaving the primary important theater of action up here in the north. Worth it if Saruman has some device that will enable them to oppose the Nine, right? Um, if he and Saruman can, you know, come back like the cavalry to protect Frodo, or if they can prevent the Nazgul from, en- you, know, cross, you know, entering through the Gap of Rohan at all, or something like that, then it will be worth it, right? It will definitely be worth it. But, um, but he still wants to know where the Nazgul are. He still needs to, you know, he doesn't want to take himself totally out. So he very naturally asks, um, uh, he very naturally asks, uh, that, um, the friends of Radagast bring news of anything that bears on this matter to Saruman and to Gandalf, let messages be sent to Orthanc. Anything that bears on this matter. I want to know as much as we can. And Radagast is awfully useful for that. Um, yeah, yeah. I see people debating about Midsummer, uh, the date of Midsummer. Um, is there any reason to connect Midsummer in the Lord of the Rings? in Middle-earth, with the summer solstice in the Northern Hemisphere? Is that, is there, is there a reason to do that? I see a bunch of people saying June 24th. Is, is there, do we know that? Do we know that that's how they define midsummer? Exactly. Um, I'm not sure. Um, what I would say is if it is, uh, if it is outside of, um, that's okay. If, um, if Radagast says Midsummer is now here, um, this is the kind of thing it would, that would, that would be an odd error for Tolkien to make. He spent a lot of time. Um, uh, he spent a lot of time worrying about the dates. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I have to think that this is one of the things that he's thinking of. I mean, Midsummer is in. I mean, in the appendices, right? In the calendar, in the appendices. Um, that's. But see, is that what Radagast would be referring to? What exactly does Midsummer mean? Um, yeah, there's Midyear's Day, right? The day between June 30th and July 1st. That's just what I was thinking of, Flamfer. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's, of course, not the word that Radagast uses, which is no surprise because he has never heard of the uncouth, you know, the, the wild place with the uncouth name of Shire, so he's not going to know the terms of the Shire calendar, of course. Um, uh, 
but um, how would Radagast define Midsummer exactly? Um, so yeah, I don't really know. Uh, it, it's, but I think it can't be far from. What does it say? What does it say in Appendix B about the date of this? What does it say about the uh, the date? It is Midyear's Day that Radagast and Gandalf meet. It's not the exact date isn't given, but that's when I would expect it to be, somewhere around around July first. Because he's imprisoned in Orthanc, what, like the 10th of July? 11th of July? Something like that? Um, the 10th of July. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, Appendix B seems to be using the Hobbit calendar, I agree. Which makes sense, of course. Appendix B being compiled uh, right within the Shire. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yep, right there between uh, June and July. Now, um, I agree. Sorry, who was just saying that about... Um, um, great. Oh, Mad Violinist, that is perfect. Mad Violinist says that Gandalf's letter to Frodo is addressed Mid-Year's Day. Okay. Um, so that's pretty clear. Mid-Year's Day. Excellent. Um, so Kurtzimus, then the question becomes, so no, Radagast wouldn't be using the Hobbit calendar, but of course the translator would be, right? So, you know, Frodo, as our narrator, um, might well use the term, but he doesn't say Mid-Year's Day because, you know, before Mid-Year's Day, because that would sound weird because Radagast doesn't know the Shire. Um, but, um... Uh, but yeah, yeah, I think um, uh, it would be pretty close, Trifle, I agree, to the summer solstice. We're not sure exactly where the solstices line up. Um, do we have any indicator of that? I don't remember any indicator of when exactly, like what dates in the Shire calendar the equinoxes and solstices fall on in the calendar. Um I've always had the vague impression that they lined up with, you know, with 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 Yule and Midyear's Day, the solstices. I mean, um, um, yeah. Druid's Fire says, do they even have equinoxes and solstices? Yeah, I think they do. I think they do. Um, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I think that there are references to like lengthening and shortening of days and nights as seasons change. So I think they do have equinoxes and solstices. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, uh, I don't, If it were true that Mid-Year's Day is the solstice, 
the summer solstice, which is traditionally midsummer, which has never made any sense to me at all, as it is nothing like midsummer. It is, in fact, whatever. Um, actually, what annoys me even more is when, you know, in the modern world, people are all like, and summer begins on the summer solstice. And I'm like, on Midsummer's Day? Midsummer's Day is when summer begins, is it? Okay. Um, uh, right. Um, uh, bingo. There it is. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Lupilia has got it there. Um, and that's it was is that an appendix D, Lupilia, the calendar, appendix. Where he said it appears, however, that Midyear's Day was intended to correspond as nearly as possible to the summer solstice. Great, awesome, thank you. That's what I was figuring. Um, that those the special days, the special extra month days, um, uh, the live and the uh, and Yule. Um, are designed to fit up with the summer and winter solstices. That's what I had always thought. So um, midsummer doesn't mean, you know, June 20, uh, June 20th or 21st or 24th or anything like that. It means mid-year's day between June and July. Um, so, um, yeah, okay, Appendix D. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Okay, excellent. So that would explain... Why, without any reference to the calendar, to the Shire calendar specifically, that is, Radagast still calls it Midsummer, right? Um, because Radagast might not know the Shire calendar, but he does know what the solstice is, right? Um, so he was told to find him before Midsummer, that is the summer solstice, um, and that is now here. Um, which, indeed, it is. In fact, if Gandalf's addressing of his letter is to be trusted, then it is in fact on the day of the solstice itself that Gandalf and Radagast encounter each other. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so... Good. Glad we sort of settled that. Um... And then he rides off as if the nine were after him. Where to? I've always wondered this. That is, I've often wondered what Radagast thought he was doing. I mean, doubtless he was actually doing something, and not only thinking he was doing, but um, uh, what... Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, what exactly he is, what, what what his plan is, right? He was sent to find Gandalf, and he's agreed to find Gandalf. He obviously has somewhere else to go, right? Where exactly is he going? Um, he is going to be faithful to what he has promised Gandalf he will do, which is to send news of anything that bears on this matter to Saruman, and Gandalf in Orthanc, right? Um, he's going to fulfill that promise. He fulfills his promise to uh, Saruman to find Gandalf and convey the message. He fulfills his promise to Gandalf uh, to send messages to Orthanc for Gandalf and Saruman uh, to, that bear on this matter. Um, but what's he doing? Where's he going? Um, 
I for Thoughtless, it seems to me very likely that it is that he is in fact I say to use a dangerous verb, herring off to uh Mirkwood, right, to go back home, uh to warn his um friends there, his friends in charges there. Um I, I'm not quite sure why he's in such a hurry, though. I really am not. Um, if anything, the fact that the Nine are in Ariador searching for the Shire means that his friends in Mirkwood are safer than they've been in a long time, right? Uh, I mean, is he going to go back to tell everybody the heat's off for a little while? Because, you know, uh, the... Dolgulder is now currently without Nazgul in, in, inhabitants. Um, but, um, uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, um, you know, I, I'm being a little bit flippant there. Doubtless, you know, there are like serious concerns that he needs to prepare his, uh, uh, his people for. But again, I'm just like, he's in such a hurry, right? I mean, he, he, he's gonna, he delivers his message. He's been traveling for who knows how long. Right. And he is he is and he's found Gandalf randomly by the side of the road. Right. And then as soon as he delivers his message, he's going to jump up on his horse and go dashing out immediately. Um, And uh, yeah, maybe he's maybe he's trying to get out of Dodge. Uh, Yeah. Um, Maybe. Maybe so. Maybe maybe that's the idea. Um, uh, <laughs> that uh, Eriador, you know, this place is it's not even for the birds, right? Uh, he's gonna he's gonna take the birds with him back to Mirkwood. Um, maybe I don't like to think that Radagast is in such a hurry because he's fleeing. Um, but um, Frumius Bujum, maybe, you're right, maybe there's an opportunity of some kind in Mirkwood that since the Nazgul are here, that if he can get back in time while the Nazgul are still in the field, they can maybe do some good in southern Mirkwood. Um, I kind of like that idea. Uh, you know, a, a more proactive Radagast uh, heading back to uh, uh, to go cause some mischief in Mirkwood while the Nazgul are away. I kind of like that idea. Um, I don't really know... Uh, exactly, but um, <laughs> Irinda says every minute that Radagast is away, <clears throat> Saruman convinces another bird to be a spy for him. You know, hey, yeah, he's corrupting the avian youth, Sam. You're completely right about that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's uh, those two things. The almost complete lack of information about what Radagast does and what his role is, right? Combined with the fact that he is off to do something that we don't know what it is in a huge hurry, I've just always found um, extremely tantalizing, right? Extremely tantalizing. Um, And I do like to imagine Radagast as a... uh, um, as a uh, uh, an active agent here, off to accomplish some good end, um, while still fulfilling his promises, both to Gandalf and to Saruman, both made in good faith. Um, let's keep going. 
I could not follow him then and there, Gandalf says. I had ridden very far already that day, and I was as weary as my horse, and I needed to consider matters. I stayed the night in Bree, and decided that I had no time to return to the Shire. Never did I make a greater mistake. However, I wrote a message to Frodo, and trusted to my friend the innkeeper to send it to him. I rode away at dawn, and I came at long last to the dwelling of Saruman. That is far south in Isengard, in the end of the Misty Mountains, not far from the Gap of Rohan. And Boromir will tell you that that is a great open vale that lies between the Misty Mountains and the northmost foothills of Ered Nimrais, the white mountains of his home. But Isengard is a circle of sheer rocks that enclose a valley as with a wall, and in the midst of that valley is a tower of stone called Orthanc. It was not made by Saruman, but by the men of Numenor long ago, and it is very tall and has many secrets, yet it looks not to be a work of craft. It cannot be reached save by passing the circle of Isengard, and in that circle there is only one gate. Okay. Um, good. <laughs> Mike says, hey, an army of tigers never attacks from the east, so mission accomplished. Exactly. Who knows how much worse the War of the Ring might have been if Radagast had not successfully accomplished whatever it was that he was heading off to accomplish. I like to think about it that way, too. Um <laughs> Green Grey Dragon says, I thought not following Gollum's trail immediately was his greatest mistake. Yeah, Gandalf here in this speech, isn't he? He's like, among, among my great mistakes are such diverse elements as. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, Freebird, it would be interesting to know how Saruman got Radagast to come in the first place. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right, Freebird. That's, that's, um, again, like knowing so little about Radagast or his movements or his motivations or his plans or anything, um, that is an excellent question, right? He's riding off to we know not where. He came to, to Saruman, we know not how. How did Saruman contrive to use him as a messenger? I mean, he must have summoned him because Radagast didn't just wander by. I mean, he didn't just pop into Orthanc for tea one day and Saruman was like, oh, Radagast, while you're here, go look for Gandalf, right? Um, he must have... Um, uh, he must have summoned him. Saruman must have summoned him. Um, you know, how? Exactly. On what premise exactly it's 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 interesting i would love to think through that whole thing um yeah no and i don't mean the mechanism i mean i i would assume a, a bird messenger would seem to me a very likely way uh for saruman to reach out to radagast i just mean what did he tell him to get him to come right i mean it's it's uh <laughs> i have to admit that if i were radagast I might be tempted to feel a little bit exasperated, right? Um, that is, um, um, <laughs> Radagast receives the message from Saruman, right? So Saruman sends a message, you know, a long ways to the east of the mountains, saying to Radagast, "Hey, Radagast, I've got, I've got to, I've got to find Gandalf, who is way north of me. Could you come?" 
here, and then when you come here, I'm going to send you off to the... He could have gone and been back himself <laughs> twice bef before Radagast got there, right? Um, it's... Um, it's... Strange, right? I mean, he has to have compelled him in some way, and then he, he must have ordered him, right? I mean, Radagast came. Radagast is faithful, uh, it would seem. Um, yeah, you, Unfinished Tales Tolkien. Radagast is faithful. Um, but um, anyway, and <laughs> Flamifer, you may notice, I'm j I, I don't want to get bogged down in the dates and travel times. I really don't. Uh, we can talk about that. I'm not averse to talking about it, but I don't want to distract from further discussion of the passage. To we can work that out maybe in another context, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bog myself down with dates and times uh, here and talk about nothing else because that's of uh, limited use uh, as a discussion here. Um, Angus, exactly. We'll save that for the cross country reenactment. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. So, um, let's see. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Um, Gandalf decides he has no time to return to the Shire. Again, makes sense based on what Radagast has told him, the whole midsummer thing, right? Um, however, I wrote a message to Frodo and trusted to my friend the innkeeper to send it to him. I rode away at dawn, and I came at long last to the dwelling of Saruman. Um, so, now again, this is reasonably good thinking still on Gandalf's part. Um, you know, entrusting the letter to Butterbur, you know, one can question the wisdom of that in retrospect, but still, it makes sense, right? If Gandalf had, if Frodo, sorry, had received Gandalf's letter and indeed left Bag End by the end of July, I mean, Gandalf is riding all the way to Orthanc and back, right? Really, uh, he should have, uh, he should, everything should have been fine. Keep in mind one other interesting thing in retrospect. July, right? That's what Gandalf's letter says, um, that he should leave the Shire by the end of July. It's, just before the beginning of July, that Gandalf is writing that letter. So even having learned that the Nazgul are hunting for Frodo and the ring, even knowing that and feeling that time might be so precious that he doesn't even have time to make a round, you know, an extra round trip to Hobbiton from Bree, he still gives Frodo a month to move out, right? He doesn't say take Sam and flee at once, right? He doesn't, um, um, he doesn't say just like throw some stuff in a bag and get out today, whatever you have to do. And I don't care what happens. Um, he doesn't do that, right? He says, um, let's step up the schedule to the end of July. Let's not wait until September after all, uh, go ahead and leave within a month. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, GDC, I agree with you that Butterbur is still the most trustworthy person to leave messages with. Yeah, yeah, no question. Not saying Gandalf had better options there, um, but um, but but yes, I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
And Mike, I agree with you. Whatever was the pretense upon which Saruman summoned Radagast, um, he would have to do so without raising any suspicions in Radagast himself, right? Um, it's one of the things that makes me so interested to think about what it was he said exactly to get Radagast to come. Um, yeah. But um, but anyway, like I said, it's um, it's... Gandalf is not panicking. And this, to me, fits with what we see about his decision. He thought he still had time. He thought he still had time, even in the worst case scenario, to get to Orthanken back, right? And that he could probably do that before the Nazgul found the Shire. And anyway, in the meantime, in that time, surely Frodo would have left soon, and then he'd be at Rivendell soon. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, see, I just can't think of any reason related to Radagast's own normal, like, profession that would lead... And especially since Radagast isn't even... We don't have any evidence that he's a member of the Council. I mean, I don't just mean the Council of Elrond, I mean the White Council. Is Radagast a member of the White Council? We don't know that Radagast is a member of the White Council. Um... There's no real indication that that's the case. Maybe he is. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, all of these mysteries. Rad- Radagast is a character of mystery, and it's one of the things that I find so interesting about him. Um, okay. So he rides away at dawn and comes to the dwelling of Saruman. And then we get a description. Right? Gandalf gives a description. First, talking about the geography, about the Gap of Rohan, where Isengard is, far south, in the end of the Misty Mountains. Um, I love the, and Boromir will tell you, that that is a great open veil that lies between the Misty Mountains and the northernmost fo- and the northmost foothills of Arid Nimrise, the White Mountains of his home. Right. Um, I love the. There are doubtless other people in the room who could testify to what the Gap of Rohan is. Right. And yet his um, his um, deferral to Boromir. Right. It almost feels like. Remember. Aragorn kind of smacked him down a little bit. Didn't smack him down exactly, but um, Aragorn's remark that a journey of 110 days is pretty small potatoes next to his total journeyings, right? Um, and even what came out in this Gandalf story about how they tracked Gollum shows that, like, yeah, like the uh, the round trip to Gondor, not a real big deal, you know, in uh, in in the. Uh, in the log of Aragorn's travels, um, uh, Gandalf seems to be kind of, um, uh, I don't know, throwing him a bone a little bit there, right? Um, you know, Boromir's experience as a traveler can tell us, right? Boromir passed through the Gap of Rohan. He's, he's It's not exactly deferring to him, but he goes out of his way to mention 
him. Um, and to mention him in the context of like, he is one as a traveled man, right? Who knows? He knows the gap of Rohan, right? Um, we, we fortunately have among us a gap of Rohan expert uh, in Boromir, right? Um, and, uh, and Sarah, yes, you're right. It had been in the territory of Gondor uh, as well. Um, so yes, as Angrist says, it's um, it's also a polite nod to the representative from Gondor's ruler. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, though, Mike, you're right that Gondor's links to the Gap of Rohan are distant, right? <laughs> distant in in geography as well as chronology. Um, and uh, Mike is wondering if it might even be in that sense a dig at Boromir almost, you know, like, uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, uh, the Gap of Rohan, which is right on the edge of your domain. Oh, yeah, sorry, that was a few centuries back, wasn't it? Yeah, I guess, uh, not so much anymore in modern Rohan, is it? It's possible. I don't really hear it that way, but it's, uh, uh, but it's, but it's certainly possible. Um, and but GDC, you are correct that of all of them, Boromir has been there most recently, right? So yes, it is true that in that sense, uh, Boromir is, in a sense, the kind of local expert, like the the expert on its current events. Yes, um, yeah, Tiver, I was kind of picturing that too, actually, uh, that uh, maybe Boromir was nodding off, and so Gandalf mentions him by name, like some school teachers do. Uh, I, I, when Boromir's name comes up in the middle of the paragraph there, I do admit that sometimes I do kind of imagine Boromir being like, oh, yes, absolutely, yeah, Gap of Rohan, uh-huh, I totally am following. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, but it is it's, it is interesting that he's going out of his way to include him I, I, in the end I don't think he's teasing him I don't think he's making fun of him um, I think he is uh, it's not quite deferring to him but um, it does seem a kind of a polite nod and Angrist I like the idea of the sort of the polite nod in the general you know uh, uh, Gondorian direction there um, uh yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> Kurtzimus says, <laughs> Boromir hears Gap of Rohan and opens his mouth to interrupt again, but Gandalf gets there first, right? So, so maybe you're saying, and Boromir will tell you, right? He's, uh, he's, he's forestalling another of Boromir's interruptions. <laughs> I like that. That's even more likely, Kurtzimus, than the whole he started to nod off uh, uh, theory, I think. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe, um, maybe Boromir's had enough of interrupting perhaps. Okay. Um, no, not really. Boromir's never going to get quite enough of interrupting. But Isengard is a circle of sheer rocks that enclose a valley as with a wall. And in the midst of that valley is a tower of stone called Orthanc. It was not made by Saruman but by the men of Numenor long ago. Another nod in the general Boromorian, Boromirian direction, right? Um, but by the men of Numenor long ago, and it is very tall and has many secrets, yet it looks not to be a work of craft. It cannot be reached, save by passing the circle of Isengard, and in that circle there is only one gate. 
Now, I do believe, um, as one or two of you were pointing out, that um, one of the things that he's clearly doing is helping out folks like Frodo, at least, who might not know enough geography to know exactly where Isengard and the Gap of Rohan are. Um, I can't imagine he's alone there. I bet you, like, you know, how long's it been since, um, uh, you know, since Galdor from the Havens went through the Gap of Rohan, right? You know, how long has it been um, since Legolas went through the Gap of Rohan, right? I mean, it's, there's... Um, uh, a lot of people. How, how long has it been since Glowin went through the Gap of Rohan? So I, I don't doubt that there are many people other than Frodo um, who might not know exactly where Orthanc is uh, and might not uh, might need a little geographical refresher. But um, the important thing, right? The the thing that I think really is important here is that Gandalf is beginning to establish an atmosphere, right, for the story that he's going to tell. Um, he describes Isengard as a natural phenomenon first, and secondly, as the as the craft of the men of Numenor. Um, it doesn't look to be a work of craft, but it is a tall tower that has many secrets, and it was built by the men of Numenor long ago. Um, so there is this, it is a place of ancient mystery, of ancient power and mystery that Saruman lives in, right? Um, yeah, F F Freebeard says uh, ex exactly the entire purpose of this speech is is pulling it all together. Yeah, exactly. Um, Mike, I don't know exactly what secrets we're talking about here, Um yeah, Mike says like libraries full of lore, um, or is it just a storyteller's? Uh, you know, are there are there hidden passages? Um, it is very tall and has many secrets. It's a very interesting piece of description to give, right? Um, yeah. Uh, Not, I think, that what he's setting up here, he's not just saying that Saruman lives here and he keeps a lot of secrets, right? What he's saying is, Saruman aside, right? Um, not even, before you even take Saruman himself into account, Isengard and Orthanc are mysterious, Right? You, the the place looks eerie. It looks like uh, um, it's a it's you know it's it's a valley that's enclosed with sheer ro rocks like a wall, and in the midst of it is this tower that was built by the Numenorians, right? In ways that we can't even replicate anymore. Um, it is very tall and has many secrets and looks not to be a work of craft, right? This is a this is a place of mystery. Um, a place that contains things that is itself a thing that we don't understand anymore and contains things, doubtless, that we don't know about or understand. And Saruman lives there, right? So again, he's not saying anything about Saruman personally, right? He's not actually telling us anything about Saruman's career. 
But Saruman's house, Saruman has chosen to take up in this ancient tower, um, build, built by a craft that he himself does not possess, containing secrets which he himself, you know, uh, uh, was not the keeper of, um, but which he has gone to examine. You know, I, I, in a, it's he's not telling us anything particular about Saruman's career, but it is a really interesting piece of context to give us. He doesn't have to say any of these things, right? Um, but he is kind of preparing us for what could come later. And then, yeah, uh, Corey, absolutely, the sense of foreboding about Gandalf's entry. It cannot be reached save by passing the circle of Isengard, and in that circle there is only one gate. The ominousness, right? The ominousness of Isengard. Um, it is It is itself a secret, right? Um, it's almost... It's almost... Um, It's almost Gondolin-like, right? Not, uh, not quite, but it's almost Gondolin-like um, in its seclusion, in its uh, <clears throat> in its near apparent impregnability. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, he's going to go on to give some more ominous hints, of course, in the next paragraph, which, needless to say, we don't have time to talk about tonight. Um, it cannot be reached save by passing the circle of Isengard, and in that circle there is only one gate. Um, the abode of Saruman is secure. It is ominous, right? Dangerous. Ominous in the sense that it is an ancient from an ancient power, but that's not bad, right? It's not bad, you know, like that Numenorians were good guys, so there are many things of ancient Numenorian I mean, Minas Tirith also is, um, uh, you know, made by the men of Numenor long ago, right? And that doesn't make it evil, um, but um, it is um, definitely um, very... Uh, It tells us some not very spoiler-like things <clears throat> about Saruman's career. Um, he has set himself up in a very secure, uh, mysterious, and powerful place. Not just powerful in the sense that it makes him powerful to live there because it's secure, which it is and does, um, but like there is power there. There are secrets there. There were secrets there before he even went there. Um Absolutely. And yeah, Freebird, you're right that um, this also establishes via the text that this is the only dwelling um, that one of Gandalf's order actually inhabits. It's the only description that we get, right? But notice also, Freebird, how that is his emphasis is that it's not, he didn't make this tower. This is not a wizard's tower in the sense that he himself built it, right? Or formed it. It's not a testimony to his own power. It's a testimony to power far older and other than his, and containing secrets which are not his secrets. Right? Um, yeah, belongs upon Saruman is a guest there, um, a guest, and potentially an interloper. Now he has permission to be there. Right? He's not. Uh, he's not squatting. But um, uh, you know, he's not an intruder. 
but um, it um, it shows him it depicts him interestingly as both a figure of strength somebody who has this stronghold but who also is a like a dwarf standing on the shoulders of giants right somebody who is um, you know who, who who what this depiction reminds me of it reminds me of meme in Nargothrond in the Silmarillion, right? Uh, after the dragon has come and destroyed the city of Nargothrond, you know, the, the elvish population there in Nargothrond, and then the dragon has left and been killed in turn by Turin, and the, uh, you know, the caverns of Nargothrond and all their treasure are left unguarded, and Meme moves in. And sets himself up in the middle of Nargothrond, in the middle of the the realm of Finrod Felgund, uh, seated on the treasure of Glaurung, and says, "I am king, right? This is my <clears throat> this is my realm." Um, <clears throat> Saruman almost sounds like that to me, right? This is not uh, this this is not this is not his place. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, no, Sam Saruman, well, he wasn't appointed exactly, um, but he was given permission. He was given permission. Um, yeah. Well, Green Great Dragon Meme believes he has a claim on that land. Um, anyway, I don't want to fight about Meme. Uh, I'm just saying that the, the image of the one, well, <clears throat> petty, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, person sitting in the midst of like the ruin of something greater than he himself could build, but like claiming it because he's the one who's there now. That's what is reminding me of Saruman here. Um, again, it's the the might of Orthanc, the might of Isengard, um, gives Saruman's strength, but it's not from Saruman's strength. It is borrowed strength. It is. Um, Something he has taken to himself, um, but it doesn't. Um, um, but it doesn't. Um, um, he can't really take credit for it. Yeah, Green Great Dragon. I don't know why there are not more meme memes. There really should be. Uh, it reminds me when I was listening to the Silmarillion with my kids in the car uh, a couple years back um, when when they got to the line. Uh, you are come to the house of meme. Both of my sons just started cracking up. Um, uh, they thought that was funny than Tyrion upon Tuna. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. Um, we're going to stop there. So uh, we shall continue with, uh, we shall get to Gandalf's conversation with Saruman. Uh, and his his account of that next time, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Amethorn, my my son's idea was that the House of Meme should really be like they're like, why is there not a website called the House of Meme? Right, that that really should exist. Yeah, JJ, exactly. That that domain should really exist. Uh, yeah, does it? Well, I don't want to click on it. <laughs> 
not knowing what's there <laughs> online. <laughs> but anyway, okay, there we are. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll experiment with that, but not what I'm broadcasting, I think, perhaps. Um, <laughs> all right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, it's field trip time. We're going to head back to Karn Doom tonight, uh, continuing our explorations there. Um, uh, but thanks, everybody, for joining me. Don't forget... Uh, signumuniversity.org slash fund or slash donate as well uh, to make your donation to Signum University to help us uh, continue to uh, to build and spread the news about our new model for higher education uh, as we move forward and of course to help keep the lights on uh, and keep our current programs running here. So thanks everybody uh, and I will see you guys next week and switch over uh, for those of you who are um, uh, on Twitter, switch over to twitch.tv slash signumu. Thanks, everybody. Okay. Okay. Oh, boy. All right. Hang on. My, uh, I keep, I don't know what's up with this. I gotta change my resolution again. Keeps going down to teensy resolution. Messing up all my UI, okay. All right, so Valoria's not able to join us tonight. Um, she is, uh, she's She's ill, unfortunately. She has uh, uh, allergies and is uh, uh, not able to, breathe super well here tonight so um uh so she's not going to be joining us for our um uh for our field trip but we're going to head back up to Tarman Sursa and we'll travel out from there um we finished going around Uragarth last time and we're going to head back to Karn Doom so up to Tarman Sursa in Angmar So yeah, Tomas, I'm not jumping to the instance. We did that last week, actually. Um, I'm just uh, I'm using the I'm just porting through the milestone here to Tarman Sursa. Uh, this is the nearest milestone to Karn Doom that I know of. Um, so let's see, what is it? And I want to look. Yep, we've got stars again. Huh? I just don't know what the pattern is there. It's almost done. Hmm. All right. So yeah, so we're, we're right now we're going to the parts of Karn Doom that I don't think. Do you need something to get through the iron gate here? I know somebody else opened the gate when I came through, so I didn't really notice. I don't know if that's quest-related. But, anyway. So, let us head over 
across the bridge here again. And we'll ignore the roving threats. All right. So we're going to head back towards Uragarth, where we came in, and then I want to continue our overland expo exploration from there. So, Tomas, we're definitely... Um, we're outside instances, at least. All right, sorry, I'm just going to get my little pet protection here. Fortunately... Uh, the orcs are all grayed out to me, so they pretty much ignore me, which is nice. And the wargs, great. Yeah, JJ, I really wish the game had a, a usable telescope item. That would be excellent. Okay, here we are on the entrance courtyard to Urigarth, which we were looking around before and decided it's almost all old Angmar. And now we want to go up this way. And all right, and we've lost the stars. Okay. We lost the stars. I think that the presence of the stars it's got to be a mistake. Though it's fun to make up stories about how that could come to be. Okay, so again, these lights... The lighting is new. Er, right? That lighting is from the hiatus. It's the newer stone with the rusted metal. So, what seems to have been built here by the newer Angmarim folks in general so far seems to be, you know, the, like, utility structures, right? The bridges and the lights. Okay, so now we come into this courtyard, and what do we see here? We see old Angmarim walls. Old Angmarim walls with a couple Tudor houses built outside. And one underneath. Is that just a passageway over here? Yeah, look at this. This is funny. This is a courtyard with a house built into it. Right? I mean, it was just built up against... Is it even flush up against the wall? It's not. Look at that. See, it stands... I could, I could, I could walk between them. Yeah, so you can see how it's not part of the original construction. But they, yet there's this massive house on top of it. Sorry? There's this massive building on top of it, though. Yeah, no, I think it was built, like, up to... It's not resting on it. Like, the the ceiling of this courtyard here isn't resting on it. I think it just built it in that space. The real question, though, is why they bothered to put shingles on top. Yeah, it's not like anything's going to rain on it. Yeah, exactly. Except on the one side, there is a gap. Right, okay. I guess maybe you could, you know... Yeah, no, so, so yeah, so the brick structure, I mean, that was there, right? Well, no, maybe not. The, 
Maybe of, not. I mean, the, the, the buildings on the side that make up the actual courtyard seem older, and then the, the structure above that looks more cathedral-like. Yeah. I was so distracted by the little indoor house in there that, yeah, no, I agree. If we look around this courtyard, right, starting from this wall, the, so what is it, the south wall and the west wall here are clearly old. Both the old black and white stone, the old weathered black and white stone, and this, you know, the, the, the that we've now identified as these, this this being definitely old, like we saw in the courtyard in front of the Iron Gate, um, and like we saw in the courtyard out in front of Urugarth there as well. But the North Wall is entirely new. And you can tell that it is new. First of all, look at the difference between the new stone here and the old stone, not just the black and white stone, but the 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 little entryway building, right? That's, the weathering is completely different. It is. It is. Um, and it's got, most importantly, I would tend to say, most importantly, uh, the the brown rusty tops, right? The, the The rusted metal peaks that are put up on the walls which resemble the old ones, but the old ones are still black and these have already rusted. So, this whole wall is new. Different source of stone or metal? Different mm -hmm. quality of craftsmanship? I think different quality of craftsmanship. I think it's because the new Angmar is lesser than the old Angmar. Now, notice that they're using the same doors Right, they've modeled their doors after the doors of the old one. If you look at the door of this is the old one here, right? Mm -hmm. And this same pattern is the pattern that we can see not only on the door of this stone building over here, but also on the door of the house over here, the wooden house. Um so yeah, I think that um and the same windows on the the thing above, the structure way above. This is the same windows as to the side. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay, so this is all new-ish. Newer. So why... These two houses look to be of the same period as the wooden house in there. So I think we decided before that the people of Angmar, like the hillmen of Angmar, came and lived here after the fall of the Witch King, right? So the Witch King is gone, but many of the native peoples of Angmar survive and continue, and they're like, here's a perfectly useful castle that's now abandoned, right? So they come and live here, and they build their houses in these, you know, isolated houses in these enormous courtyards. That's typical to what we've seen. Why this house was built indoors, or why they built this whole wall and then that house indoors after they built the wall, or why they built the, the walls around the house, 
This I am not sure of. I do not think I have a good explanation for this. Which came first, the yeah. stone or the house? Exactly. I, I would think the house would come later simply because it's made of wood and yeah. you know, the, the stucco, which is definitely not going to last as long as stone in any case. Right, exactly. And they're not exactly going to... I mean, a stone construction on this scale, they wouldn't be like, oh, but there's already a house there. Let's just build around it. Right, I mean... Yeah, they would have just flattened the house and be done with it. You'd think, right? Sure. Um, though, see, here's another instance where this Tudor construction is part of the whole concept here. I'm also curious about the siege engine back here. Which one? This one? The um, huge bones? The one that was at the top of the stairs. Yeah, the one here in this corner. Um, I mean, the orcs are used to crafting these incredibly crude mechanisms. You know, lots of metal, lots of spikes, but they were looking fairly haphazard. This actually looks like somebody designed it with an eye to aesthetics as well as function. It's very strange to me. Maybe. Well, I mean, the bones are aesthetic, um, which is an aesthetic which is quite common. Among... Oh, I wasn't referring to the meat wagon. Oh, no, which Sorry. one? Sorry. Over but here? Back here in the corner, yeah. The one that looks kind of like a... Oh. Yeah, that one. I mean, it's got these little flags with this, this eye symbol all over the place. But what kind of siege engine is it? Um, is it a, not like a trebuchet or a catapult? No. It's got a crank up on the top, which pulls a chain, which it's, I think, a, like a siege engine? Maybe like a people mover or some kind? Yeah, like you could climb up and scamper up over this, like it slopes up so you could... S there's like a... That chain seems to be holding yeah, a drawbridge, drawbridge that you put down, right? So that yeah, I... And it's like a ramp, an actual ramp going up... A ramp, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's not as crude as the, as the works we're used to seeing, though. Really yeah, I mean, it does still have a bunch of, like, wooden spikes and stuff, you know, which is... But um, it certainly seems to be a little bit more, um, I don't know, cunning, perhaps? Um, more complicated, right? With the, with the... Hang on a second. I just noticed there's a chain coming down. Where does the, where does the back chain go? Can we get back there? No. I don't think so. But it looks like it's adjustable, like, based on the size of what structure, what wall you're putting it up on top of. Yeah, see, there is, you can see from the top here, that is a whole ramp. I think the bottom is to pull up, maybe, to pull up the bottom ramp so it doesn't drag on the ground. It certainly looks a lot more secure than a typical siege tower. 
you know, like a siege tower on wheels. Um, looks like it would be secure, more secure, and it would be faster. So it's more stable. But yeah. It just doesn't look as I'm trying to trying to use the right word, but haphazard is is one that I'm thinking of. Because a lot of what right. we've seen is like they just throw stuff together. Right, like like a bunch of sticks of... just kind of tied together. Right. Yeah, yeah. And this definitely was designed right, rather the, than just thrown together. The lumber is squared. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it uses squared off timbers instead of just like sharpened logs. Yeah. Tires have, you know, these spikes in them uh, and, you know, studs for better traction. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Hmm. Who knew? But you know, the symbol of the eye, though. That's an. I don't think. Have we seen that symbol? That specific symbol of the eye before? I think we have. I think we have. But um, the fact that shields are hanging on it is. Hey, somebody did get up there. But I think we can see actually from above well enough. Just by moving the camera. Um, anyway, the hanging of shields on the side is a little bit interesting. Especially since they're different shields. And they don't seem to be good guy shields, like, you know, trophies or something like that. They're also not in a position to actually protect anybody running up the ramp. No, but that's like having decorative shields, like the shields, you know, on the, you know, on the, like a, a long ship or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, as being more you know, just sort of like declaring who they are and that kind of thing. But um, I just, I don't remember shields being used as decorations by the orcs very often. More more commonly banners or like the painting that we see, like or the little like, you know, warg profile statues or whatever. Right, um, I could see it if they maybe were trophies from, from, you know, captured or defeated people, but these would then have their own symbol on it. Yeah. Yeah. Unless they rubber stamp their symbol onto the windshield, those couple of shields we see hanging there, it's like, oh, we sold these shields, we're going to make them ours now. Right. Right. It's still pretty cool. Right. Yep. I still don't know whose skulls those are up on top of the... They don't look like Aurochs. No. Well, it's not Aurochs as the game portrays them. No. I think they're cana they're yeah, they're carnivores, these skulls. Maybe some form of ancient dire wolf. Right, some kind of giant warg or something. A really big warg. Yeah. I mean there are some really big wargs in the game, but Okay, let's see. Let's keep going through here because what I'm seeing here is pretty exciting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is what we saw from a distance. This is all new. All new. Everything in here is new. Now this is old. Darn it. Sorry, I keep my camera. My UI keeps messing up. Um, Yeah, so... This building... Is like the old buildings that we're seeing. Flanked by newer towers. But most of it, everything in here, is new. 
New gray stone with rusty tops. Huh. Little village. The Angerman version of a Christmas village? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, so you can see how this is like, uh, you know, in the during the time of the hiatus, this becomes like a little village square, right? What was just a courtyard of, of the old Angmar. But it seems like a lot of the inner walls have all gone. Since the couple sides... Wait, which way did we come from? This isn't the way we came from. We came from this way, right? We came from the south. Right, we came from the south, exactly. And so down there you can see the old walls right from here, right? Those are the last ones that we saw down on those southern borders. And everything up here, west, north, and east, that we can see, which is not much from here, but it's all new, just like we saw from the scenic overlook. Now, would it be possible that this this one remaining ancient building was the, like, one of the, obviously one of the original buildings, but maybe it has some special place of significance as to why it's still standing or it never fell over, so, you know, they decided to just keep it. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, the building of these two newer towers, or four newer towers, actually, around it is particularly interesting, right? Why would they do that? Keeping it from falling over, perhaps? Maybe. Maybe. Is it an entrance to, you know, larger delvings inside the hill there? That seems likely, based on what we've seen. Hmm. Yeah, keeping it from falling over seems like a good plan. Um, that seems a good explanation. Uh, or maybe to place their stamp on it. Say, hey, you know, this is ours now. Yeah, maybe. The metalwork has some curious ivy work on it, though. On this ancient building. Ivy work. If it's ivy. Where? Like, it looks like snakes, like, on the arches? On the metal before... Like, above the door? Ah, sorry. No, um, that's fine. Oh! I see. Right, the big metal arches. Not yeah. the frame of the door, yeah. Hmm. Are those snakes, or... Fish or squids? Yeah. Squids? Yeah. Why would they have squids in Angmar? No idea. Yeah, I don't. I don't think those are necessarily representational. Like, I don't think they're like depicting snakes or squids or you know, in particular. Um. They look, yeah, they look just decorative. But that itself is interesting. Um, they're, they're more elegant. Yeah. Because most of the stuff that we've seen, the works of evil are generally harsher, 
more angular and this is very curvy and flowing it's a very mm -hmm. different perspective it is it is it does look as as emily says almost almost elvish um in style now here's another thing that's kind of interesting and that is the decorative work on the metal pieces that are like bolted onto the side of this wall mm -hmm. that look like flowers or maybe insects with wings or something like that oh like butterflies maybe yeah i don't know it almost looks like that shape though doesn't it does it also kind of looks like a double-headed mace that you just like smack somebody in the head with but that's just right me. right um but yeah w one certainly wouldn't have expected a butterfly motif design motif in either old or new Angmar. I don't think it's literally a butterfly, but there are these touches. And that's the new metal. Um, that's the new good metal. That's the new fishhook metal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, because they have the sharp pointy bits. Exactly. Um, like we can see up there on the top, over on this tower, hanging down from this arch, in striking contrast to the rusty metal at the tops of the towers. So the thing, one of the things I'm still trying to work out. So we've got the newer stonework and the older stonework. And we've got the houses. And I'm still trying to understand the relative age of the new stonework and the houses. That both of them are newer than the old Angmar is clear enough. But which one is older? I'm tempted to say that the Houses, one well, of the houses couldn't have come first. Everything in the last two courtyards we've looked at suggests that the houses came second. Again, unless we're suggesting that a whole other courtyard was built around that one house. That right? would seem very silly unless it was like some extremely important person in this house. It sure would. And similarly here, I mean, look how this house is snuggled in between... Hey, watch it, troll. Um, is snuggled in between these two towers, these two pillars here, yeah. right? I mean, that can't have been, they can't have, they can't have decided to just put stone towers around the wooden house. They must have built the wooden house after those towers were already there. And it was just fitting in the space. Right. And they built the, the house to fit in that space. Well, the two-wagon garage, no less. Or a carport, anyway. There you go. Yeah. With his and her wagons. In which case... That would suggest that there are then four four distinct periods, right? That does make sense, yeah. Old Angmar, right, the original, the Witch King's original. Then later, the newer stonework. Then the houses. And then finally, the recent additions by the new Angmar folks. So the question is, who did the new stonework then?
if the new stuff, like the fish hooks and such, are the work of New Angmar and their attempt to reclaim the glory of Angmar of old, Obviously, it would be men of some kind, because... Yeah. But not hillmen, because the hillmen wouldn't build stone. You wouldn't think. They'd be building, like, in tents and whatnot. Unless there was a time immediately after the fall of the Witch King, in which some of the old, you know, soldiery of Angmar who were left were like, hey, we're not ready to go back to our old clansmen ways, Let's try to do like a, you know, an Angmar revival. Um, and so they built in stone, emulating the work of the Witch King, but they didn't have quite the ability to do it, hence the Rusty Towers. Um, and then, but then after that, you know, whoever were the ambitious folks who were behind that uh, pattern, um, the you know, the descendants of those people were like, actually, now let's just go back to our uh, our hillman ways. And so they started building the um, houses. Or the hillmen could have built it on somebody else's orders, you know, as slaves, because, you know, the hillmen were not the ones in charge around here. Right. But I don't know who, in the absence of the Witch King, like after the Witch King is thrown, is overthrown, who was left, who, what outside power was left to rule over the hillmen? Well, there would always be somebody willing to fill in uh, a vacuum of some kind. Yeah. But if it's not one of the hillmen, then whom? See, look at all these new spikes. Yeah, Angmar was big on the spiky bits. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And all new stone in here. Which certainly suggests... So at first, when we came across that first new wall in the southernmost courtyard there, I was thinking that maybe they were just creating a partition, essentially, right? Um, but it's not. That was the end of the old wall. We haven't seen any since then. Not a glimpse of it anywhere. Which is leading me to think that Angmar, old Angmar, was in fact completely thrown down. I don't even see anything that is obviously like the foundations of that of that older building. I see some old Angmar uh, to our east. The the stone building behind there. Mm-hmm. Behind mm -hmm. the gateway. Yeah, but not walls. Yeah, but not walls. The black and white walls, I mean. Right. Well, we don't see them because there's something in front of them. Or they might have been thrown down and this is replacing it. Yeah, I'm going to go with thrown down because the new walls, I think, are inferior to the old walls. And anyway, if they were just behind them, we'd see some of the tops, the old tops of the walls, the black tops, not the brown tops.
And we get all these gates. Well, the eastern gate, the wall on that one does go back a ways. On the corner. In this little nook down here. Oh. Right, this little nook. Right, this goes back for like two layers before being built over. Yep. So they missed a spot basically when they were building the new walls. Yeah. There was something that didn't fall over, so they just built around it. Right. And all of the surviving I agree that this part looks older. Right? It's part of the older grey stone structure. And those they seem to have kept in many places, right? Well, I mean, it does represent less work to have to do. Not that they would really care about giving their slaves and thralls anything less to do, but right, um, it would mean they would accomplish their goals, their goals for their superiors to say, okay, I got my guys to get this wall done sooner, or whatever. Right. and the But yeah, the, the walls themselves are the things that seem to be destroyed, seem to have been destroyed. That's what they've replaced. Middle-earth seems to have a problem with people throwing stuff down and actually completing the job. Even Galadriel messed that up. What, overthrowing things and leaving stuff still yeah. up? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It seems to be a running theme. Well, it's hard, you know. I mean, you've got to be what? frightfully thoroughgoing if you want to overthrow something and totally stamp it out so it never rises again. Even, uh... Even Carthage came back. This is indeed the truth. Okay. Love the gate. No eye in this one. Well, yes, there is. Just the doors are opened. Are the doors open? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's in the portal. Yeah. All right. Well, I am keeping everybody wait. So I will. Uh, ooh, hang on. One brief observation, and then we'll go. Look at the uh, decorations on the side of these uh, big fish hook things. Look at the, again, the swooshy near elvish mm -hmm. design. Yeah. On the side like, of the base. Is that a of that. hand toward the top? Looks like it, right? I don't know that it is. Again, I don't think it's representational, but it's fancy. Definitely not their usual, oh, I'm going to put spikes in harsh angles on everything. Sort mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. I can't decide if I think that's a rune, like in a circle there. Oh, that, hmm, I wonder what rune it could be. Or a symbol? Yeah, I'm just not really sure there. But yeah, that's definitely more abstract than just like, oh, we're gonna put a fancy design here. Yeah. And there's a little bit of action up there at the top. Decorative action, I mean. Yeah, yeah, toward the very top, like in the first uh, barba down, as it were. Yeah, and you can see even in the distance. The spikes that are up on the top of the walls have the same designs in the same places, down near the base and up yeah, on those well, topmost ones. Yeah, well, I think they're wings. basically a copy of the same. I well, 
yeah. out of character terms, it's a copy of the same item, but in characters, like they use the same design over and again. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean it's definitely on the same, definitely on the same model. Um, hmm. Yeah, and that definitely looks like the newest stuff here. Um, it hasn't had a chance to weather all that much. Though I'm actually curious about the damage to a couple of the barbs, like the, the one yes. right at the top of that. Curious. Yep. I mean, obviously it matches because you know, they mirrored it, but would anybody have allowed there to be an imperfection in the design? Well, obviously there is. Yeah, I mean, it does look like it could be dented, but... Is it rock or is it, is it metal? I think metal. it's metal. It looks like it's metal. Um, forged in one piece? But I wonder, that, could it be... Um, made a huge mold? Could it be some kind of corruption or a corrosion on the top of those barbs that causes that? Well, if it was forged rather than well, not forged, but molded like mm -hmm. somebody made a massive mold of that shape Yes. and the mold was damaged in some fashion and they said, well, we don't have time to make another mold Right Hope the boss doesn't notice Right But it's interesting to see that you know, there's it's like a blade sticking mm -hmm. up out of the ground and it but it's it's not it doesn't have the same shape in all four cardinal directions, just the you know, the left and right as it were. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. It's uh Agnum and Christmas tree. Yeah, and I mean it's all these barbs that of course have led Valori and I to call these things fish hooks mm -hmm. from the beginning. Yeah. Um but yeah, they they are directional that way. They don't just you know, stick out in all four directions the same. So I wonder if their placement is important in some fashion. Not necessarily just, oh, hey, our 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 path is going this direction, eastward, for example, so we're going to make them all face eastward. I wonder if there's some kind of significance to the fact that they are set so that the blades are facing outward to somebody who's walking through this tunnel. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean... Or are they functional in some way? I mean, are they connected with the spells that are, you know, overcast, you know, making the overcast in the sky and, you know, shedding the pall of gloom over all of Angmar? Hmm. Um, is there a mystical significance to these? Um, these, you know, less so, it would seem. Um, but um, less than some, like the big fountain. Of course, that we saw, but yet there's there are some queer similarities. All right, but anyway, I, I've been saying I'm gonna let everybody go, so I will I will let everybody go. Uh, we will we will be back next time. Boy, I wish there were a close up map of Karn Doom. I really really do. I want a blow up map of Karn Doom. Might be I, able to find one for you. Anyway, I mean, I want one in game that I can see, look at, and show. Anyway, um, okay. So we will uh, 
we will pick up here next time and continue our exploration, see what further evidence we get to try to understand the sequence uh, for uh, next time. That'll be a fun thing to look at next time. Um, so um, thank you, everybody, for joining us tonight. And we will see you guys more next week for more explorations. Thanks, everybody. Good night now. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.